Welcome to the Weekend Write-In, where writers read flash fiction. I'm Sovon Drake. And I'm John Edwill. John. John, wake up. It's time to produce the next podcast. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I'm not finished editing. You edit stories in your sleep? Yes, I thought I'd take Tom Walborn's advice. You know, when he has a story that isn't quite right, he sleeps in it, and then the ending or proper tweaks are clear when he wakes up in the morning. Oh, that's a good idea. I have a whole drawer full of stories that have flopped. They could really use some help. Well, then you'd best get your jammies on. So today uh, we have in the studio uh, Tom Walborn and Joyce Holtz, and today we're we had the idea of giving each other some advice on stories that we've written a while ago. And there was something not quite, quite perfect about them. Um, and we thought we would uh, get feedback from one another to see if we can maybe um, figure out ways to make the stories better. So uh, welcome everyone. Who would like to be today's first victim? I can do it if anybody's, no one else is ready to jump up. Yeah. And before we dive into that, uh, you had mentioned something called your sleeping, sleeping on it method or sleepers or something like that. Can you tell us, uh, <laughs> tell us about uh, your, your, your sleeper method? Yeah. Okay. Well, sometimes as I am writing, I, I have an idea and I'll flesh it out a little bit, or I'll do a quick first draft of it. Uh, and then I decide I'm going to sleep on it. And it's usually not so much the process of sleeping, but the process of stepping away from it. And I may be in the shower and I think of something, or I may be working on something else entirely. And I think of something and I, I grab my phone and make a quick memo to myself to go. So I don't forget it again. Yeah, it usually works. You let it sit for a long time, read some really good stuff and come back to it. And suddenly it looks completely different. Yeah. You, you answered my follow-up question, which, which is there, is there a fundamental difference between the sleep on it method and the shower method? No, the, they, <laughs> same they, concept. Work, they work equally well for me, but you probably don't Just want to take phone sleep in the shower <laughs> or, or take any phone memo memos in the shower either. You're right. That is a difficulty. All right. Uh, talent. Talent. Yes. Yeah. So, so tell us a little about when you wrote talent and what the inspiration was for it. Well, it was, uh, inspiration was a prompt. It was several years ago and I had an idea in my mind as I usually do. And I started writing and as I start the story and I, and it's, the story morphed. So I set it aside for a little bit because it was getting away from the, where I was thought I was going with it. And it was getting a little wordy. And when I came back to it, I just had trouble getting started again because it had morphed so much. It had changed so much. I had one vision of the story in my mind, but the story wanted to go in a different direction. Uh, so my questions to you guys are from, I guess the first thing is if there's, if there's a salvageable, is there anything in there that caught your interest where you would like to read more about it? And uh, I've got it as 600 words right now, which is a little bit too long for a, a single one-off prompt but I don't know where I would cut it if I was going to do that. Or should I just cut a, do a chapter break and start a second, you know, follow up with a second part of the story, a continuation. 
And if I'm going to do that, what is the subject of the story? Is it the laboratory that works with the gifted children uh, or Detective Lawson, which is a minor character really in the story, or the little girl, Carly? Uh, where should my development efforts go? So that's where I'm at with it. Talent. No, I cannot give you access to the children. We take their privacy very seriously. But not that seriously. You've already published a half a dozen papers on what you are finding. Neville Champlain, a thin, fussy man, continuously rubbed his hands together as he talked. Well, yes, I think it is important that our colleagues understand what we are doing here at Erpa Labs. As director, my responsibility is to make sure that the phenomena that we study here are presented in the most scientific way possible. That's funny, Lawson observed. I thought all those papers were presented as grant submissions. Well, we do have to keep the lights on. What specifically are you asking for, Detective? You have a young lady here who has demonstrated a remarkable talent for reading people. I'm told that she's hitting about 96% accuracy. I need her to pick out one guy from among two dozen we have rounded up. We need to know who to concentrate on. Champlain was shaking his head even before the detective finished. He interrupted, absolutely impossible. We cannot expose our children to sordid police business. Lawson leaned back. You didn't let me finish. I work for the Joint Terrorism Task Force. My boss's boss reports directly to the president. Which side of the federal balance sheet do you really want to be on? On the plus side or the minus side? Just put me in touch with the kid's parents. Okay, Carly. As I explained to your mom, you won't have any contact with these suspects. You can see them, but they cannot see you. One of these guys is really bad, but he is hiding among the rest. Some of them are probably bad guys too, but just not as bad. Can you see the guy I'm looking for? That guy, number four. Most of the others are scared, but his soul is just black. Thank you, Carly. I'm going to have you wait for me in the cafeteria while I take care of some business. Then we'll get some lunch. Carly got a Coke and looked around for a table. A woman sitting in a booth against the back wall caught her attention. She walked over and asked if she could share the table. Distracted, the woman was about to say no, but then looked up and saw Carly. She nodded yes. Then she lowered her head and stared at the table. Carly sat and watched her for a moment. She could feel an angry black cloud around the woman's head. The back edge of the cloud was edged in red. The woman had been weeping, and now her face was hard. She kept one hand in her lap, below the table. You don't want to do this, Carly told the distraught woman. That, that man, he murdered my husband. She waved her free hand towards the courtroom, just across the hall. And now they're talking about setting him free. Grandmother, do you have grandchildren? Carly asked. The woman nodded. They mourn for their grandfather. How will they feel if you are taken too? The woman brought both hands to her face and wept. Then she patted Carly's arm, slid out of the booth, and left. Carly remained where she was until Detective Lawson showed up. You hungry, kid? Starving, but first you better take care of that. She indicated across the booth. Lawson stepped to the other side of the booth and removed a small black pistol from the bench seat. It's not needed anymore, Carly told the detective.
Does anyone have it want to start out with the comments on the story? I can start out. You know, I'll take I'll take them in reverse order if you don't mind, Tom. By by all means. Um, right. I read through it and I thought that you definitely have to focus in on one character for this one. My We're all nodding here just for the audio record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, difficult to tell, isn't it? Um my feeling was that you should go that you should have gone with with Champlin or maybe bring in another researcher. So if you were having this as the first chapter of a longer story, this would be a sort of maybe a slight misdirected start, but it serves to introduce the situation. And I think my thoughts were that you know go with the, go with the research lab because that gives an opportunity for more characters, more interaction, more drama. Okay. I'll I'll be honest. Um, I think the idea of psychic children has been overdone in the past, and uh, I think Stephen King pretty much has that area sewn up. But I think there's plenty of of scope for looking at this chapter. It's a very good jumping off point. Yeah. Okay. Because it it could it could go so many different ways, as you pointed out, and I think it's six hundred words. It's you know it where it ends. It's good as a standalone. But I think that what it needs at the end is it needs some kind, if you're going to use it as the first chapter of a book, it needs a hook. Yeah. So a little bit, so a little bit extra to drag the reader further on. All right. But you would expand the story in the direction of the uh, research lab. That would be, that would be what I'd do. Yes. Okay. And, and just to prove that the more opinions you ask, the more, you know, opinions you get, I, I kind of like Carly as the subject um, but we haven't really gotten into her mind this early in the story yet. And it, I kind of went back to the concept of, you know, what makes a good story that a character has to want something and there has to be an obstacle that they have to overcome. And so there are some obstacles that you set up in the beginning, like, you know, getting access to the children, but that was overcome relatively easily. It seemed like, um, and obviously you could make that the focus of the story, um, but I kind of, I, I had some some brainstorming ideas that are, are would be a fun way to take it. Um, and, and I was thinking like maybe eventually Carly and Lawson become partners. So I sort of was thinking like the detective and the psychic child duo, right? Ultimately the president is in charge of, of the funding and you know, are you gonna let down the president? And and clearly Lawson has some or is suggesting some loyalty to the president, but ultimately Carly takes down the president and Lawson has to choose between Carly and the president. Oh, I think that was interesting. Cool. So that was just like, that was where my imagination um, took it. Um, but I was curious, what does the um, ERPA lab, what's the acronym supposed to stand for? You know, I had that in my original notes. And if I go back about three pads worth, I could probably find it. <laughs> might have to <laughs> come I don't up remember with a new... <laughs> right now. Yeah, a new acronym, right? Yeah, uh, a backronym then. Yes. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I did feel like having a, a gifted child, a psychic child, has been done before, but I like this one. I think if you were to keep this for just one standalone little story, that Carly is the main character, and you could trim a little bit uh, judiciously out of the first scene. So if you were to have this as one out of 
a group, you could either focus on Carly and have Lawson be her adult sidekick, or you could focus on him and have her be the sidekick. Or you could uh, have different chapters for the different children who have different uh, uses in the, the work that Lawson is doing. Uh, I was also thinking um, if you were to keep it focused on Charlie, that you could also explore some of the downsides to having this gift. Uh, is she able to make friends? Does she see too much? Does it make her uncomfortable? Does she have to put up a shell to keep from seeing things? Um, would other forces besides the government want to exploit her? Um, if you were to do a series either with different children or with Charlie as being the repeat one, you could have um, kind of intermissions with Lawson dealing with Champlain there. So I, I could see little short ones with the adults negotiating and longer ones with the children implementing or using their special talents. But I really liked it. I loved the ending. That was a great ending. Oh, thank you. I was nodding as you're talking. Again, the cameras don't record that particularly for the, for the sound, the audio portion of it. But uh, I like the idea of having downsides to her gift or, or other gifted children. What are Yes, they have these special powers, but what are the downsides to having these powers? And could somebody exploit them? Thanks. I think sometimes a, a neat exercise, if you want to figure out, you know, more about your characters or which way to take a story is to rewrite a scene in different points of view. Like it'd be really, I, I actually really like the concept of her, you know, talking down this woman who was going to go shoot someone in the courtroom. And uh, I think that that is a great basis for a story. So I, that really captivated me, but it'd be really interesting to, you know, rewrite the scene from Carly's point of view or from the woman's point of view um, or even more from Lawson's point of view. Interesting. Okay. Now you have too many ideas. Well, I've got a page and a half of notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who's next? Um, so this story was inspired um, two summers ago. I was in New York City in July. It was very hot. And um, we were staying at an apartment that actually had one of those really dangerous windows that was almost floor to ceiling and opened and, and it was really high up. You could just step out. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really scary. Um, and also I walked past the restaurant, which is the title of, the, um, of it. And it was a very fancy restaurant. It looked very high end and looked very nice to be inside. So I think I was just using things that I saw in everyday life to, as the basis of the story. Um, and it was one of the few stories where the writing group, which is usually just, you know, has sort of fun comments without getting, they're like, no, I don't believe this character. So the character seemed to multiple people not to be believable. Um, and so I, I was interested in getting more feedback on that. Jared shook as he sipped the Don Perignon in the dark and watched the lights twinkle around the perimeter of Central Park from his apartment on the 22nd floor. He owned much larger properties, of course, but he always came here to the small apartment with an impressive view on his first night in the city. He could have seduced women anywhere, 
but he was nothing if not a creature of habit, one with an established reputation for crushing multinational corporations and, he fancied himself, sentimental. The bar at Morea also drew such an endless supply of lovely ladies, impressed with his residence upstairs, that he exclusively used his Central Park South residence for his Manhattan affairs. Jared oozed wealth and charm. When he flashed his white smile, his perfectly tailored suit, complemented by designer shoes, left no doubt in women's minds that the view from his humble abode was worth coming up for, for just a minute, to admire. His baby blue eyes and the fact that he kept most of his salt and pepper hair as the years went by didn't hurt either. He knew, and they knew, he had everything any woman ever wanted. No female ever turned him down, except tonight. Jared poured himself a fourth glass and racked his brains trying to find another answer than the obvious one he had spent his entire adult life blatantly ignoring. He replayed the evening in his mind for the thousandth time. As always, he zeroed in on his prey before he'd finished his boutonesca. Ironic, he knew, because he had never paid for sex. He might indulge in gentlemen's affairs, despite being married, have no qualms about dismantling long-held family-owned businesses, push the limits of corporate law, but he prided himself in being a moral man. A young woman, he was not ageist, he would happily seduce a willing beauty of any age, had caught his eye tonight. Judging by her attire, she was drinking a cocktail above her means. Not that that bothered Jared, he wasn't a snob when it came to the wealth of women. Not a tourist, no, a New York working girl, not a prostitute, of course. Before he approached her, he refreshed her drink with nothing more than a silent nod to the bartender. She looked anxious at first, but when reassured her benefactor paid for her beverage, she relaxed a fraction, but glanced around surprised. Not an unusual reaction. Jared followed up by politely introducing himself. Jenna chatted up quite nicely, proving herself quite educated and articulate, if not slightly tipsy. To his annoyance, however, she glanced at her watch, before somewhat reluctantly joining him for dessert. Perhaps she was meeting someone, not an obstacle he hadn't overcome before. When she didn't hesitate, when two glasses of twenty-year tawny port appeared beside the chocolate cake, Jared knew he was only one innocent invitation to enjoy the view and a glass of champagne away from getting laid. But her boyfriend appeared. Again, nothing a business mongol like himself could not handle. This one looked so hungry with long, skinny limbs protruding from his polyester uniform. Ah, he worked at the plaza. That was why she was here. He could be bought off by attention from the chef, whom, like the bartender, Jared maintained unspoken agreements. But it didn't work. Jared opened the window and unbuttoned his shirt sweating. He could not breathe. The muggy New York summer air swirled around him, such a distinct, familiar smell. He swallowed dryly. Those poor buggers loved each other. That gangly fellow had kissed Jenna and grabbed her ass, and she loved it. He pictured them making love, as surely they were now. Her desire for that boy over his wealth shook Jared to his core. Like every successful business decision he had ever made, he did it without hesitation. He jumped. Okay, well, I'm going to comment, first of all, on something that I had written down towards the end. And I, quest I questioned the step out window at that high up. I would have thought there would have been a balcony or something to prevent them from just stepping out the window. 
Yeah, the window was real. And okay. I had I had a, you know, nine-year-old child. So he was not gonna fall out, but it was definitely a freaky New York City unsafe window. Interesting. Okay. Uh well, let me as long as I open my mouth, let me continue with some of my thoughts here. Um I agree with your writers group that I didn't find the I didn't find the uh the character I didn't find that it was there's enough motivation for him to step out the window. You know, it, there was and partly I think it is for me uh specifically your use of hyphens and and extended sentences. I kind of got lost in them. They made it difficult to read. And it take for me, it took it away from the story a little bit. So if you break, possibly if you use, develop the character a little bit more with shorter sentences and uh, maybe a stronger emphasis on his uh, success rate and uh, lack of failure, that might provide more motivation for the reader to accept the fact that he's willing to kill himself just because he, this girl didn't go to bed with him. Uh, I'm go I, I'm going to agree with with Tom on the on the character. Uh, the problem with I had with Jared was that I just wasn't sure whether I was meant to feel sympathy or disgust for him. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, you know, because it could go either way in that story. It, his character, his character, uh, his character needs development because it is ambiguous. Yeah, um, and I thought, you know. You know, even even if he is meant to be somebody disgusting, I can still I can you know whenever he the whenever he throws himself out the window, it's still it's still an end to to a, to a life. And you know, did he deserve it or not? There's just there isn't enough to hang any there isn't enough to really hang any motivations on him. If you were to go back and rewrite this, I'd agree with Tom and I'd say definitely concentrate more on the character of jared give the reader more insights into jared yeah and decide how the how the reader is meant to feel about him any other thoughts joyce um, yeah you never stated what the obvious reason was for his advances being rejected and i was really curious to find out more about that maybe i think you're trying to be subtle and not bombard the reader which is good uh, but maybe just a little bit too subtle. I was going to say, I think it's a problem with with five hundred word weekend writings that you that you can't afford to be subtle. <laughs> when I read over it again, I noticed the very first line: Jared shook as he sipped, and I didn't catch the shaking bit right at first, and I had lost it um, while he was going through all his uh, his strengths that he saw. So maybe if you don't. Start with shook, but kind of work in little tremors of this and that, breaking up his his introspection there, because he feels pretty good about himself overall. But um, bring in the little doubts. Maybe he tries to push them aside because they don't fit. I, I like that. That's good. I like that idea of weaving weaving in the doubts a little bit more and maybe in the second to last paragraph gives some kind of concrete clue as to that shortcoming he's been ignoring all this time something really short and just right which is hard to come up with but overall uh reading through it it was kind of meandering and introspective 
which made a really good contrast to the very last drastic action, really short. So that was a good contrast. Do you wanna go next, Joyce? Oh, okay. Um, I, I didn't dust off something old. I was just something that had been rolling around in my head. So it didn't come from a prompt. It's just, I want to write this up. So uh, I worked it, I wrote it out once and it was too opinionated. So I wrote it out again. I don't want to lecture. I don't want to make it sound like a textbook or propaganda. And a lot of people who won't agree necessarily with what I'm saying, but I just wanted it to come to life with characters. Uh, so I, I tried <laughs> the first time through grandma was lecturing too much. So I tried to get her to ask her granddaughter's questions and have them make discoveries. So I was wondering if, if the ideas come across easily or if it seems forced and if a reader's opinions differed drastically from this, would it be thought provoking or a turnoff? So that's what I'm looking for. Like the Tide by Joyce Holt. Almost lunchtime, Bryn told her daughter. Want to join me? They only charge $5 per visitor. Heidi shook her head. I'm meeting the gaggle in a couple hours for a late lunch, but I'll sit with you and chat some more. How about the girls? Bryn nodded at her granddaughters who stood gazing out the second story window. Would they at least like something off the dessert cart? Grandma, ten-year-old Siri called over her shoulder. Didn't Mount Tahoma used to have more snow on top? Depends on what time of year you last visited. The glaciers are all melting, Charisty said, her 13-year-old voice sounding grim. Global warming, the planet's in big trouble. Ah, Bren said, see that book on the top shelf, the blue one with white letters? Let's take that down to the lunchroom. All right, who's going to be the driver? Siri leaped to the wheelchair and grabbed the handles while Charisty slid the hardback book from the shelf. The pulse of planet Earth, the teenager read aloud, wind and wave and the pull of the sun. As they trundled along the senior residence hallway, Bryn asked, What do you girls know about the Ice Age? The movies are funny, Siri said. What do they say in school about glacial epochs? We're not talking about Ice Ages, Grandma, Charisty said. That's talking cold and long ago. I'm talking warm, too warm, now, and everything melting. Check the definition of an Ice Age, page 90-something. Heidi pressed the elevator call button, grinning at her mother's tactics. I found it, Charisty said as they descended to ground floor. <clears throat> A period of relative cold climate when summer warmth does not melt away all the winter snow. If a glacier exists anywhere upon the face of the earth, the planet is in an ice age. So, Bryn waited. We're in an ice age right now, Siri blurted. 
Yes, it's called the Quaternary Ice Age, or the Pleistocene. Whichever term you use, it began about two million years ago. But it didn't bring about a constant extra-cold period like you might be imagining from the movies. Look at the next page. When the climate drops to extreme cold, Chersty read, glaciers expand. That's called a glaciation. When the cold lessens, the glaciers retreat. That's called an interglacial. We are currently in the holo, um, the Holocene interglacial, Bryn filled in. Chersty read silently a little longer. There have been five major glaciations in this ice age and five major interglacials, counting this one. In the lunchroom, Bryn pointed out her usual table. Siri abandoned her chauffeur's post, grabbed a seat, and joined Chersty in poring over the pages. Look at this chart, Chersty said. The climate temperature line swerves down and up and down again. But look closer, it's always wiggling around up and down on top of the overall path. It never stays put, Siri said. Bryn nodded. Like a very slow tide, with great swells, rumpling waves, and ripples. We've got one big ripple in our family past, Heidi said. Tell them about the old farm, Mom. Well, some of our ancestors in Norway had to move when a growing glacier swallowed up their farm meter by meter, and that was 300 years ago. Now, with the climate warming again, the glacier, Nygardsbreen, it's called, has finally retreated far enough for those fields to see daylight once more. Will someone move back to the farm now? Siri asked. That's what people do when the climate changes, and animals too, Bryn said. Move to follow the environment they've adapted to. So there's nothing to worry about? Chersty asked. Oh, plenty to worry about. A whole lot of adjusting to do. It won't be easy, but it's not the end of the world. Life finds a way, Siri said. Chersty rolled her eyes. Heidi grinned. Back to the movies. Bryn swiveled her chair to line up with her placemat. Anyone for pineapple upside-down cake? Okay, somebody say something. <laughs> I, I, I can say something. I was, good way. I was trying to be polite, not jump in right away. Um, but I can say something. So there was a lot of dialogue in the story, and I, I think it might be nice to try to balance the dialogue with more action or thoughts. And one idea that I had that you could try to see if you, how that would change things would be maybe changing the point of view of the story. So if you made it from the point of view of one of the girls, then you could keep a lot of the dialogue, but then you could also show her making the conclusions by, you know, saying, you know, you could say something like, Chersty traced her finger up and down the swerves of the climate line. It wiggled around up and down on top of the overall path. So you could kind of describe her actions. And then, um, I, I, you know, you could have her, for example, imagine the sheets of ice a mile high. You know, maybe she, maybe she could imagine what it was like when Mount Tahoma was a sheet of ice that had swallowed everything 
in its path, including her grandmother's home. And then picturing the lunchroom frozen like an ice cube and her apple perfectly preserved for thousands of years, you know, because glaciers have come and gone in this area, you know, for a long time. So I just thought that might be a way of her making those conclude, you know, learning about these, um, you know, these changes that the, the world has over time. Or she could also giggle at the thought of a mammoth farting. That must have that must have smelled horrible, you know. And then she could say that must yeah. have smelled, you know. Well, those are good. Thank you. Anyone else? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you just said in your dialogue here earlier that was it thought provoking or a turnoff? I I definitely thought it was thought provoking. I wasn't turned off at all um, by it. It, made, it actually made me think a little bit more, which is I'm sure what you were aiming for. The question you asked in the email was a textbookish i found that the some of the technical terms uh made it i think if i had to isolate what made it textbookish or that style is the quaternary or pleistocene uh the holocene the interglacier i just jotted down a few phrases and that whole paragraph on glaciation and interglacials during the quaternary page age could have probably from my point of view been rewritten in a grandchildren type language okay uh my note was humanize the ending a bit more uh, maybe grandma's pride in her granddaughters and uh the bit about easing their worries i thought was good and you may expand on that just a little bit yeah i like that part of it that you know we want you to take care of the environment we need to do all the things to be good to the environment but you know you don't want your grandchildren worrying about it day and night either it's it's a balance uh, i was looking I, I was reading through this story and i was thinking that uh, a dialogue is a great way for raising questions in a reader's mind you know it's, it's a great classical technique but um i think but as i was reading through it i thought that it was too there there wasn't enough to raise questions in the reader's mind i i thought that you know, some of the more negative aspects of climate change needed to be raised in it. So, uh, yes, the you know the, retre the retreating glaciers are un you know have, have have given more farmland, but you know what's the downside of that? For example, you know to take to take another to take another example fr from your story. You know, uh, what do you think? Are humans the sole cause for the warming periods you see in the chart? You know, Kirsty's response about it's, you know, and Heidi's response, you know, it's possible that human activity is accelerating things, though, isn't it? And it's, it just need, I thought it just needed a bit more emphasis of the negative side, because when I read it, I came away with, how can I put it? I came away with a feeling of, not of urgency about things, not of, not of debate, yeah, more that things had more that things had been settled, and it's not you know it's not a case of worrying about it. I know that the story is from the point of view of a grandmother talking to her children to her grandchildren, but I still thought that it could could have done with a bit more of the negatives to it. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you could have maybe two of the characters debating a little bit more. That that would. That would do, you know, that would allow you to introduce kind of more sides if, if that's where you wanted to go with it. That would be good. 
Although family debates don't always end well. (laughs) (laughs) I was um, trying to address the great worry and, and fear that I see sometimes in the younger ones. It, you're right. I think anytime you you open up a a topic that's where there's people who feel strongly on different sides of it, there's always that risk that you you know per, get perceived as taking sides or alienate people who feel differently about things. So it, it's a it becomes more a more delicate topic whenever it's ha- it carries something where there's contro- some controversy in the world about it. I just want to yes. add a note that I've always organic garden. I never use pesticides. I've got a worm bin and I mourn every tree that gets cut down. <laughs> you could add that too. Ooh, okay. Like the grandma, you know, like the grandma could be like doing all these great things. Lots of composting and a, and a wood pile for insects in, in my case. All right, John, should we, should we shift gears to your story? All right. Uh, a brief introduction to, to my story. It's, it, it's the first chapter of a, of a longer story that I've been trying to write for a number of years now. Uh, the story is based on an incident in Irish history just before the First World War when when a group of uh, when a group of of, uh, of unionist uh, when a group of unionists uh, tr- smuggled in arms into Northern Ireland in order to in order to support an uprising against the imposition of Home Rule, um, I didn't want to I didn't want to make it ba- I didn't want to make it an exa- a novel about the exact events because things like that are still a bit fraught in Northern Ireland, so I intended to make it a comic story on something vaguely similar along the lines of Pacoon by Spike Milligan. So it's meant to be lighthearted. It's meant to be semi-historical. But I did take it out to be reviewed by, by at a professional clinic for writers and the person who was reviewing it just didn't get it. So it's a question of what was I doing wrong? What could I do better? Dundreary by John Nedwell It was an evening early in the summer of 1913. A cold north wind was blowing down the channel between Scotland and Ireland across the mouth of Belfast Loch and through the town of Dundreary. The wind lifted the skirts of the women sitting on the benches at the seafront and tugged at the jackets of the men leaving the town's orange lodge. They had been attending a talk on the evils of home rule, and now were heading for the shelter of O'Neill's Bar. The elders of the lodge did not approve of the consumption of alcohol within its walls, and politics, as every man born in Ireland knows, is a terribly thirsty business. O'Neill himself was behind the bar. He was not a member of Dundreary's Orange Order. He believed in the right to sell alcohol to any man, regardless of their creed or politics. But he was familiar with the timings of their meetings. Pint glasses of Guinness were already standing on the polished wood of the counter, their contents turning from grey to a sharply divided black and white. The rest of the drinks would wait until they were asked for, but a pint of Guinness needed time to achieve the standards demanded by the patrons. The doors to the saloon banged open, and the chattering crowd of orange men flooded in. Drinks and money changed hands as quickly as possible, then the men sat down to the serious business of the night. 
Sure, it is a terrible thing. Daniel Shea put two pints on the table with a soft thump. Aye, you've only bought the two. Connor Leary reached for one of the glasses, but had his hand slapped away by Shea. Where's mine, then? You can bloody well get your own, Shea retorted, and placed one of the pints in front of the third man at the table. There you go, Miley lad. Milo Backler, the youngest of the three, took the proffered drink and raised it. Ta, schlante. Shea glared at him. Well, uh, none of that Fenian talk here, he growled, and snatched the glass away from Backler's lips. Leary grinned at the young man's misfortune, thinking it was a sign of things to come, and put his hand out to take the glass. Shea turned his glare on him. I said get your own. Even better, get me the one you owe me from the other night. Whiskey, in case you'd forgotten. Leary left the table, grumbling his way back to O'Neill himself at the bar. Shea put the glass down in front of Milo. There, now mind what I said. He sat down opposite the young man and leaned across the table, which shifted under his weight. So, what did you think? It's good beer, Milo replied, wiping the head from his mouth. Shea rolled his eyes in despair. No, about the talk. Do you know think that home rule is a terrible thing? Milo took a gulp of the stout before answering. I'm sure it is, but damned if I know why. Oh, God, you're an eejit. I'll tell you why. Now listen. Shea launched into a forceful explanation of the evils of home rule, and how throwing off the benevolent yoke of the British Parliament would give the feckless Catholic masses an undeserved dominion over the decent, hard-working Protestants of Ireland. Every time Shea uttered the words Catholic and Papist, which was often given the subject of his rant, he pounded the table with his scarred fist, giving a physical emphasis to his opinions. Each blow sent the beer in the glasses slopping out from a pool that spread across the woodwork, before trickling over the edge of the table. Milo listened dutifully to the older man's tirade. A pint of Guinness will buy a lot of attention in an Irish bar. The other patrons of the bar paid no heed to Shea. They were used to his ways, and had long since worked out how to stand and nod without listening. Milo, being a recent recruit to the Dundreary Orangeman, had not, so the return of Leary to the table provided Milo with welcome relief from Shea's sectarian polemic. There you go, Leary said placing a tumbler of whiskey in front of Shea. We're even. Shea grunted and tipped the contents of the tumbler into his stout. Leary stood waiting for some show of gratitude, and when none was forthcoming, sat down. As he picked up his pint, a strange expression, half surprise, half disgust, stole across his face. Then he shot to his feet, slapping at the sodden seat of his trousers. Jesus! Which one of his bastards pissed on my seat? The bar fell silent, allowing his words to ring out. Shea stood up. Don't you dare take the name of our lord in vain, you! And with that, Shea laid out Lear with a single blow from his fists, sending him reeling back through the crowd of drinkers to slump against the front of the bar's counter. Then Shea looked down at Leary's chair and dipped a finger into the liquid that had pooled there. He raised the finger to his nose and sniffed it. That's beer, Shea declared. Serves you bloody right for spilling it. The, with the first chapter, I had the impression that there were undercurrents that I wasn't getting with what you're writing there. For example, the bar that they were in, was the town that they were in, was this a border town? Did it have uh, Catholics and Protestants uh, in the same bar or in the same community that were at odds with each other, on edge with each other? Um, I, I didn't sense a tension there that I kind of 
wondered if it, if it was there. Um, well, it's, it's based on an amalgam of places that I know very well. Um, and to, to, answer the, to answer the simple question, yes, there's, yes, there's not a lot of tension. But uh, at the time, there, there, the idea is that, that I'd be introducing more tension as it went on. Okay, so one of my notes was, is Shay trying to convince Milo, or is he trying to enlist him, or is he just there to inform the listener or the reader? Uh, definitely trying to enlist him Okay. in a very roundabout way. The, uh, the organizations at the time were very secretive and didn't want to be found out, although that's part of the humor of the story, in that ultimately it ends up being a very public thing. You see, I don't know if you. I'm. I don't know if you're familiar with the Lauren gun running incident at all. In fact, allowed you not. But it was meant there. The people who did it were trying. To, one of whom was a mad Irish major who'd been involved in a mutiny a few years previously. They were trying to smuggle in arms into Northern Ireland, and they didn't do it secretly at all. There were brass bands. There are people waiting on the shore to cheer it in. There were convoys going up and down the coast, you know, trying to distract the police who are also in on it. And I've always regarded it as being one of, you know, one of these incidents that you wouldn't believe if it hadn't happened. <laughs> mm. Irish okay. history is full of them. Okay, except for the incident with the uh, somebody pissing on his chair, that I didn't get that sense from this your opening chapter here this this particular chapter so it's it's probably something that uh, you asked us uh about the opening chapter and I, I don't have the exact words right here but uh so the from what you presented so far i wasn't getting very much of that but i definitely would have read further based on what i've seen here i'd be i would be looking for something else you're setting up something there's implied tension but there wasn't anything right there there's implied comic events with them the buffoon claiming the chair was had urine on it um there's a he knocked the guy down with one fist or one blow or something like that and uh so, so there's a little bit of brawling implied all this is implied but it's 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 it, it didn't work for the one chapter, so I'm glad to see that they're they're planning or you planned or have written more for it. <laughs> I think your exact request was suggestions on how to make it more accessible would be helpful. There you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. My my thinking it seems to be written in omniscient point of view or uh, anyway you're touching on all the different characters and I think it might help to have one main character to begin with, maybe branch out to other points of view later. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, I, I love those first three paragraphs. They set the scene so well, but you might want to work them in uh, as they leave the bar rather than right at the start. And uh, just start out with the uh, pints of stout thumping on the table, a little action, some words, and some people right off. I guess that's what I, I really love the flavor of it because obviously you know your stuff, the whole setting in Ireland, and it just it's just a delicious read. 
and it was his pounding on the table that slopped the beer that spilled onto the chair, right? Yes. Okay, yep. that's what I thought. <laughs> Probably very clumsily worded on my part. Well, but it came through. I got it. Um, I, uh, I, I agree um, with Joyce's comment that it'd be nice to start with more action. So you, you actually had me read all eight chapters maybe a year ago. And I was like, wait, this sounds familiar. And I'm pretty sure I made the same comment. The first, the first sentence particularly is kind of passive. You could even start with the second sentence. I like the image of like the skirts flying up in the breeze. Um, uh, just, and you could work in that it's evening and that it's 1913 anywhere else in the whole first um, opening chapter. So that was, that was my thought. And um, um, I, I like the opening chapter. I, I think it set the scene really well. You're in a bar. There's a bunch of guys who are a little comical, a little rough, you know, the Guinness is pouring freely. And so I, I it painted a really um, great opening image in my mind. You, you mentioned your hesitancy about publishing it because it's still a delicate topic. No, well, we we cel we quote celebrated unquote a hundred years of the border this year, so <laughs> so I, I I use the word celebrated in in quote marks very very deliberately. Yes. Yeah, that that you know that the, there are that there are there are still people who haven't forgiven who haven't forgiven other families for uh, for what happened in nineteen twenty two and twenty three. So, I thought we had some really good comments. Does anyone want to, or John, do you have any final things we should say? And like, well, let me just say wow. I really enjoyed this. I think it was a great idea. Yeah, it's always good getting feedback from from independent people, and always and always appreciated. So, thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank you. It's it's nice to get get some ideas and feedback on stories. Thanks for organizing it. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Weekend Write-In Podcast. For more episodes and links to more work by these authors, go to our website at www.weekendwritein.wordpress.com. The Weekend Write-In Podcast is co-hosted, produced, and edited by John Nedwell and Sylvan Drake. In this episode, royalty-free music is from festlionstudios.com, sound effects from BBC Sound Effects Archive and freesound.org. So, Sylvan, you're having insomnia then? I've been tossing and turning for hours. All right, look, here's a cookie and here's a glass of warm milk. That should get you off. Oh, thank you. Will you read me a bedtime story too? If you think it will help. Most definitely. Here, read me this one. It's my favorite. Okay. All right. Ooh. I know this one. <clears throat> the sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. I sat there with Sally. We sat there, we too. And I said, how I wish we had something to do. Too wet to go out and too cold to play ball. So we sat in the house. We did uh, nothing at all. And all we could do was to sit, 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 sit. And we did not like it. Not one little. 
Aww, drat. Mm. I'll never get these stories done now. <laughs>